There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 24th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Brexit may or may not happen on the 31st of October. There may or may not be a deal. We might even discuss what the outcome could be later on. But let's start today with how Brexit is already affecting all of us. We will all be poorer next year. Prices will increase with inflation, but workers will not get any tax relief to counteract the cost of living. There is no increase for pensioners, no across-the-board increase in welfare payments. The lowest paid had been expecting a pay increase of 30 cent an hour as recommended by the Low Pay Commission, but the government has said it cannot increase the minimum wage to 10.10 an hour because of the fear of a disorderly Brexit. This means that next opportunity to increase the minimum wage will be in January 2021. Very clear enough. Okay. This is not a postponement. Okay. This is a, well, it will be revisited by the Lopez Commission next July, who mm. will make a report and yeah. a normal scheme, normal way to the minister, mm. and then the next possible increase to the minimum wage won't take effect till the 1st of January 2021. That's Jed Nash who as Minister for Business and Employment constructed the legislation which governs the minimum wage and who told me that there is no possibility of postponing the increase in January. That by deciding to postpone the increase the government has in fact deferred it until January of 2021. Yesterday the doll heard from Minister Regina Gina Doherty, who said otherwise. Nevertheless, the government accepted the recommendations of the Commission in their entirety, but decided to defer a decision on when the Commission's recommendations will commence uh, until the outcome of Brexit becomes clear. So therefore, I intend to make provisions in the Social Welfare Bill, the Social Welfare Budget Bill, to declare the national minimum wage in 2020 in line with the Commission's proposals once the situation um, of Brexit is being clarified. And if a Brexit deal is agreed before the end of the year, I would expect that the minimum wage change will happen on the 1st of January 2020, as it has done in previous years. That's Minister Regina Doherty speaking in the Dáil yesterday. The Minister is not available to us this morning, but we are joined once again by Labour Party Senator Jed Nash. As the architect of this legislation, do you accept what the Minister said yesterday? Um, 
she's obviously considering uh, in the event that Brexit is clarified uh, of doing something on the minimum wage. Um, I believe that when I see it. Uh, remember, this is couched in the language that we will do this once Brexit is clarified. There's no mm. sign mm. of Brexit being clarified. But is that possible without wondering whether Brexit will be clarified or not? You, is you, it possible? Because can, as I understand it, you said that the Low Pay Commission makes its recommendations in July. The government then decides mm. to act on those recommendations or not by way of an announcement in the budget. There's no chance to revisit it in between. The Minister is saying she can revisit in the Social Protection Bill, which will be published in December. You can do many things in the social welfare bill with the social welfare budget. It would be unprecedented um, um, to, given that we now got the Low Pay Commission Act, which organises how we plan the minimum wage uh, and how we uh, organise for it, uh, to decide that you're going to introduce a change to the minimum wage in the social welfare bill. Now, it's been done before, mm. uh, and it's been done back in 2011. Uh, remember um, when the recession hit, Fianna Fáil reduced the minimum wage by one euro an hour. One of the first things that the Labour Party did when it entered government in 2011 was introduce a new social welfare bill that actually increased back the, increased the minimum wage back up to eight euro sixty five. So potentially this is mm. something that's it's unprecedented. Uh, it's not something that would have been considered when the Low Pay Commission was being formed because in the normal course of events there would be one review each year. Uh, that review would be accepted or otherwise in this case it wasn't accepted by the Minister on the basis that Brexit was going to uh, hit uh, the economy or potentially. Uh, So this is unusual. I'm interested to see how things spin out over the next few weeks but the fact of the matter is that and I could say this very categorically here, there will not be an increase in the minimum wage in January as planned. So the Minister is correct in suggesting that it is possible to make the increase through the Social Welfare Bill in December, uh, but she's not correct in suggesting that it might happen. I'm not even sure she did suggest that it would happen, but but there's no prospect of it happening because uh, what she is saying is that this depends on Brexit being settled and that there being an orderly Brexit, and there's no possibility of that. There's going to be an extension announced this week. Absolutely, and heaven knows what's going to happen after that. We could have an election in the UK, we could Mm. have an election here. Uh, Everything is up in the air. So in many ways, Michael, nothing has changed because Mm. the Minister's intervention yesterday. Clearly, she's considering some kind of a resolution to this, but based on an orderly Brexit, so but therefore nothing has changed. Is she, actually? I mean, you'd wonder if uh, that's it or if she kicked it to touch because there's no prospect. There's no realistic prospect because there's going to be an extension. And correct me if I'm wrong, if this goes past December, that means, because of the way the law is constructed, that there is no possibility of increasing the minimum wage until January 2021. That was certainly my view because of the way that the Low Pay Commission legislation has been done. The Low Pay Commission uh, legislation, which was passed in the middle of 2015, envisages one review a year. Uh, the report is given to the Minister within three months of mm. the middle of July uh, each yep. year. Uh, the Minister has to make an order to give effect to that recommendation. And if it's a case that she disagrees with that recommendation, which in this case she does, um, by the way, they didn't accept the Low Pay Commission report in its entirety. There was a minority report by three business representatives on the Commission that said that, well, we could probably live with a 15 cent an hour increase, but if it's a case that we have a hard Brexit, we don't want an increase at all. So this has business recommendation written all over it. 
uh, what the minister has done, and it's a very dangerous precedent, <laughs> she said, I'll is give ignore the, the commission itself, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. ignore mm, mm, the mm. advice of a statutorily independent commission that was set up in mm. law to advise the government on low pay and decide to go with the friends and business. Mm. Uh, so and she said, I'll give the 30 cent, but I won't give the 30 cent. Uh, well, manana, yeah. uh, mm, maybe, mm, possibly, mm. who knows. Um, point is, Michael, this is really a nasty and gratuitous act by Fine Gael. If you look at the budget itself, you outlined it earlier on, we have those who are on fixed incomes, people who are on weekly social welfare payments who won't receive an increase. We have the lowest paid workers in the country, about 150,000 of them. And by the way, not just the lowest paid workers in the country because there are several hundred thousand other workers who have uh, rates of pay that are what I call analogous to, to the rates of national minimum. So when the national minimum wage goes up, their pay goes up as well. So we're not just talking here about those who are on the rate of minimum wage. We're talking about workers whose mm. rates of pay are linked to increases in the national minimum wage. So we have increases and we have funds and so on that are set up to support small business and the farming community in the event of a hard Brexit, which we support and we provided for that in our alternative budget as well. The way to support people through a difficult time and choppy waters uh, around a hard Brexit is to actually support businesses in that way. Mm. Not a single job will be retained, or not a single job will be saved, not a single job will be uh, created by keeping the minimum wage at this rate. All it does is actually affect people on fixed incomes. If there's a hard Brexit, it's going to be high. Food prices, high energy costs. Inflation is expected to be at 1.5% next year. So therefore, if you're on a minimum wage and you don't get an increase, you have an effective pay cut. Mm-hmm. And if you're on a job seekers payment, if you're on carer's allowance or on a pension, you're going to see an effective cut. Mm. OK, what about a supplementary budget? We spoke uh, with Michael Taft, who's a researcher with uh, the SIP2 trade union and economist himself, and he thought that there was the prospect to increase the minimum wage through a supplementary budget. Well, the minimum wage itself wouldn't be increased through a supplementary budget. I mean, it's not a finance matter for the government. Um, it's a, it's simply a matter of giving effect to the order that the Low Pay Commission has has re- recommended. But I think what Michael Taft was, was explaining, and I think what we were discussing ourselves in the Labour Party in the Dáil last week, was, well, what happens if it's a case that we have mm. a softer Brexit? Uh, the resources that have been ring-fenced by government to support business and so on won't be required, so therefore there would be a prospect of a supplementary budget, and that's something that we would support to make sure that we have the mm. across-the-board increases that we propose. But are, are you saying that December is uh, the last opportunity to make this decision to announce an increase in the minimum wage? It, it, well, it's the only legislative opportunity that the Minister will have because the Social Welfare Bill will be published in December. Remember, it will take a couple of months for the Social Welfare Bill to pass all of the stages in the Dáil and the Shannon to give anything effect anyway. But if the Minister has found a way uh, that I'm not aware of to actually give effect to an increase to the minimum wage, my, my expectation is that she may put it in legislation and decide not to commence the provision until such time as she is happy that Brexit has been resolved. Mm. Who knows when Brexit is, res- is going to be resolved? None of us. Mm. Uh, she was also asked about uh, the living wage uh, and if uh, the minimum wage could, in effect, become what is the living wage rate. And she said, don't conflate the two, that the living wage is something that employers give voluntarily. Um, and technically, she's right in that. Uh, the minimum wage is that statutory floor beneath which nobody should be allowed to fall. That's the basic minimum rate of pay that any employer uh, can give uh, any worker. The living wage is uh, a rate of pay that's devised by an expert group that considers kind of a basket of goods and what it actually, what what a kind of minimum income standard for an individual single person should be allowed them to have a reasonable standard mm. uh, of of living. Um, 
I've always been clear that I want to see the minimum wage transition to what's considered to be a real living wage because we have a problem with low pay in this country. 23% of all people are earning below what might be considered to be a living wage and that's that's not acceptable. It shouldn't be acceptable to anybody. What we want to do is uh, go back to actually what happened in the year 2000 when the minimum wage was first established by Mary Harney, in fact, that Mm. well-known socialist revolutionary. Um, She actually pegged the national minimum wage at 60% of median earnings. So at the moment, that would be at about €12.60 an hour. Mm. So over a period of three to four years, we want to instruct the Low Pay Commission to work with business, work with trade unions, uh, work with experts to try to devise a route to a living wage and continue to peg the national minimum wage at 60% Mm. of median earnings. Somebody who's working for a living, Michael, should not be considered to be working poor. Somebody who's struggling to make the rent, struggling with their transport costs, struggling with education costs for the kids. Were you being facetious calling Mary Harney a a socialist revolutionary? If if our listeners couldn't see the tongue firmly planted in my cheek. So... Uh, is that a, a reflection then on how you view Regina Doherty and the current government, uh, that they don't live up to the standards of uh, the right-wing values uh, that Mary Harney held so dearly? Well, Mary Harney clearly felt that uh, statutory national minimum wages were a good thing for uh, society, a good thing for business. And what they do as well is give business certainty over labour costs year in, year out, and that is an important thing. Uh, the problem I have is that no government uh, has actually um, pegged the minimum wage mm. at 60% of median earnings since the year 2000. Mm. Since the first minimum wage rate mm. was established, it has moved away from that uh, and it needs to get back to that point. Uh, if, if, if Mary Harney could accept the, uh, uh, that that was the correct thing to do, uh, I think uh, every government, regardless of its complexion, should consider that to be the right thing to do now, okay. 60% of median earnings. That's the kind of criteria in terms of low pay. That's the threshold that the OECD mm. considers to be the threshold of low pay, 60% of median median earnings. So next year we're going to have 3 three to 4% pay mm. increases across the board, Michael, in the private sector anyway. Uh, but it looks like uh, that and is that going to may be offset. or postponed for those who are on the minimum wage. But th- well, that's the thing, isn't it? Those increases may offset the cost of living increases uh, for most workers, but not for those on the minimum wage and not for those on social welfare and not for those who are reliant on pensions because uh, they have no opportunity to increase their income. Yeah, unless you're on a living allowance or say for a pensioner mm. couple, they're going to see uh, an actual decrease in our living standards and our purchasing power because we'd have inflation of at least 1.5% and that's without considering mm. Brexit uh, itself. So pay increases of 3 to 4% across the board in the private sector, no pay increase for the lowest paid people in Ireland, no increase for those in social welfare weekly payments and a massive increase in their food and energy costs. These are people who are on fixed incomes. They know what they have to spend mm. every week. They budget accordingly. Food prices are going up. Energy costs are going up. And that's well the prudent the approach, we're told, because of the fear of a disorderly Brexit. And uh, Pascal Dunahoo, when he made his announcements for the budget next year, said that everything was overshadowed by Brexit and the prospect of a no-deal Brexit. And as part of his calculations, the minister set aside... Uh, a fund of 1.2 billion euro to cushion against the impact of uh, a disorderly Brexit. That's if it's needed. If it's not needed, what should he do? Well, if it's not needed, the budget should be revised and revisited. And there's the potential to do that. Um, I don't see Fine Gael doing that. Um, the right thing to do for society would be to revisit the budget in the event that there is an orderly Brexit and to make sure that those who are on fixed incomes 
uh, seen improvement in their circumstances. What we proposed was a five euro a week across the board increase in social welfare rates to stay ahead of inflation and to make sure that the people who are in the firing line in terms of a hard Brexit would be somewhat insulated from that. Now, that is costly, and how we said mm-hmm. we would pay for that is by increasing the levy on the banks. The bank levy at the moment is about €250 million Euros mm-hmm. a year. We're going to bring it up to at least €400 million, Euros, uh, and uh, we're looking at other revenue-raising uh, measures as well in relation to uh, adjustments to various allowances for high rollers um, that could be um, put into the kitty, as it were, to try to mm-hmm. insulate lower paid, be less well-off people against the impact of Brexit. And it must be worrying, especially for pensioners who don't have the prospect of earning more money. Uh, They rely on the pension for those who are on a fixed income. Uh, To hear the likes of Sean Moynihan from Alone saying uh, that they would require €7 a week to stand still. So if they don't get the €7, surely they're down €7. Well, that's it, because prices go up and they're paying more for the loaf of bread, the litre of milk, um, paying more to put the heating on. Uh, remember, the only increases uh, for older people on, uh, living alone allowances and mm. some very small uh, increases. Uh, and that's welcome, obviously, but the best way to do it is to provide an across-the-board increase. Um, seven euros, if feasible, um, mm. we proposed five euros based on balancing the budget and where we were going to get that extra revenue um, from. And we did propose that there would be a fund of over one billion euros to support businesses and farmers who would be mm. hard hit uh, and very anxious about the impact of Brexit. That's how you actually support uh, business and support the economy, mm-hmm. not by targeting those in low incomes and fixed incomes. It looks as though there is going to be an extension to Brexit, so there will be the possibility of taking steps like this for the government or perhaps for the next government. Uh, there is uh, the prospect of an election, undoubtedly in the UK, but also here. What 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 do you think the chances are at this stage, Jed Nash? Uh, hi. Um, there's an amount of tension in Leinster House um, Before Christmas. this week. Um, if it's to happen, it will have to happen on the 29th of November. Mm. Um, if there's an election in the UK, um, I think the House of Cards will fall here. Mm. Um, I said in the programme, I think, earlier this week, um, this doll is looking exhausted. It's out of road. It's out of energy. Mm. There's, a, um, there's a few ducks in a row. They're not all in a line, but uh, we're looking at uh, a number of things happening at the same time. Yeah. And we're talking about the possibility of an extension uh, to Brexit being announced today uh, and an election in the UK announced in the coming days Uh, and then we're looking at uh, this report today into uh, the phantom voting and uh, vote gate or whatever words you want to put on the button pressing and all of that Uh, and the friction as you say uh, between the two parties so there is uh, uh, I suppose uh, the stars are aligning a little yeah um, Mm -hmm. and my own sense of it is if there was to be an election we have a recess now for the next uh, Mm. week and a half or so uh, when the doll and Shannon resumes, I wouldn't be surprised if the teacher comes in and uh, explains that he's off to Oris and Oogderon to seek a dissolution. Um, I think the Taoiseach won't want to fight an election in the depths of winter after December, into early in the new year, um, with the homelessness situation as it is, uh, with um, hospital trolley waiting times and unprecedented uh, hospital trolley waits uh, the situation an unprecedented alarming rate uh, level across the country um, and um, I don't think he wants to fight an election on the domestic agenda he will hope and think that the situation with Brexit would make him look statesmanlike and make mm. him look good give him um, the breathing space as well breathing space as well um, and he may feel that he has been a fall where he needs them now given mm. their well, they are um, in trouble, situation no in terms mm-hmm. of the vote gate 
debacle. So um, we'll watch this space, but I would not be surprised if uh, we don't have four by-elections on the 29th of November and we have a general election. It's something that I would very much welcome and I think it's something that the people would welcome as well to elect a government that's sustainable, a government that governs, um, a government with some kind of a majority to actually take the decisions that need to be taken in this country because so many cans mm. have been kicked down the road. I mean, we were talking, I, I was on another programme last mm. night, Michael, and we were talking about the Votergate situation and that really is, I think... Uh, it's a, it's a it's a it's a reflection of of the kind of debasement of of this doll. I mean, I remember the first private members motion uh, that was before this government back in May 2016, and it was from the Labour Party, and it was a motion on workers' rights, and we defeated the government. Mm. And it was front page news because it was the first mm. private members mm. motion that was passed mm. in twenty yeah. odd yeah. years. Now it's become routine. Mm. So government is ignoring mm. routinely. Mm. Uh, the will of the doll and the will of the Shana. They're ignoring votes, mm. ignoring democracy in there. But you believe we'll that's be elected. when people don't care about what buttons you they believe press, w- that's dangerous. You believe we'll be pressing button- buttons, the public will be pressing buttons that will be electing the next government on the 29th of November. With, with the paper and pencil. <laughs> OK. Thank you indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning, Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to the horrendous uh, discovery of uh, 39 bodies in uh, the back of uh, a truck in Essex uh, ye- uh, yesterday. We'll be discussing this uh, in some detail a little bit later on in the programme, but we'll hear a little bit of what uh, the Deputy Chief Constable in Essex, Pippa Mills, had to say about this yesterday. Shortly before 1.40am today, we received reports that a number of people had been found inside a lorry's container at the Waterglade Industrial Park on Eastern Avenue in Greys. We believe the lorry is from Bulgaria and came into the UK through Holyhead on the 19th of October. Emergency services attended, but sadly all 39 people inside the container had died. Early indications suggest that one of these people was a teenager, the rest are believed to be adults. A murder investigation was launched and the lorry driver, a 25-year-old man from Northern Ireland, was arrested on suspicion of murder and remains in police custody. At this stage we have not identified where the victims are from or their identities and we anticipate this could be a lengthy process. I would like to thank the local community and in particular those who have been directly affected by the police cordon at the industrial site. Thank you for your cooperation and I appreciate the impact the road closure will have on businesses within the cordon. I'm unable to say at this stage how long the cordon will be in place, but please let me reassure you that my officers and partners will be doing everything they can to release the scene as soon as possible. This is an absolute tragedy and very sad day for Essex Police and the local community. We will continue to work alongside many other partner agencies to find out what led to these deaths. I'd like to appeal for anyone who has any information to contact my officers at the major investigation team on 101 or by visiting our Essex Police website. We will update all of our channels as we're able to, but please appreciate we're in the early stages of what is likely to be a lengthy investigation. What alerted you to the scene? It's all about the nationality of these people. I appreciate it's early days in terms of identification. Not at this stage, and obviously the identification of the of the of the victims remains our number one priority. So that will be taken. What alerted you to the scene? What 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 led you to go to the scene to investigate? Um, We received a call from the ambulance service um, taking us to the scene. Why were they alerted to that? I'm not sure that information at this point in time. Um, Not at this point in time. Can you tell us a bit more information about the pathway of the lorry 
Um, you said that it, it, it came through Holyhead and was Bulgarian. Do you know how the lorry entered Ireland? Do you have any dates? Any, any... Susan said it's the early stages of the investigation, but obviously that will be a key line of inquiry. And as I've said, if anyone's got any information relating to that lorry and its movement since entering the country on the 19th of October, then please do contact us on 101. What stage are you at with the operation of, of removing and dealing with those bodies at the moment? It's, it's very early stages. It's a complex scene, and we've got expert officers working with partners at the scene to identify and the, the best way forward to do oh. that. Are they male or female in both victims? Um, well, in, in terms of the those those um, individuals, um, not not in a position to say. Yeah, that's the, uh, Deputy Chief Constable Pippa Mills uh, speaking to reporters uh, yesterday and uh, there was obviously some confusion uh, in Essex yesterday. Police went on later to say that in fact uh, the truck did not enter the UK from Hollyhead, that it had entered from Seabrugge into Purfleet and uh, docked in uh, the Thurrock area shortly after half twelve but that the tractor unit of the lorry had originated in Northern Ireland and that's led to an investigation here as to what Irish involvement there was in this terrible tragedy if any. It's not the first case involving the moving of migrants that has resulted in bodies found in the back of trucks in 2058 bodies were found in a truck that had travelled from Seabrugge in Belgium to an English port town. The migrants were Chinese and they died by suffocation. A Dutch court jailed seven members of a Chinese gang in relation to that. In 2001, in Rosslare in Wexford, a truck which was supposedly carrying furniture from Milan uh, was uh, stopped. Uh, the driver actually noticed that the custom seal on his load was broken and discovered 13 people who had been in the container for more than five days. Eight of those people, including four children, had suffocated and uh, the migrants had paid up to €15,000 for the journey in the back of the truck. In an operation, the trial herd was earning €12 million Euro a year from human trafficking. In Austria in 2015, the worst case so far discovered 71 migrants in a truck on a motorway, a total of 59 men and eight women and four children, including a baby girl from Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan, had died in this truck which had been abandoned on the side of the motorway in the hard shoulder and was part of an operation that they estimated resulted in 100 people being trafficked into Europe on a daily basis. Let's uh, go to Northern Ireland uh, where, as you know, abortion has been decriminalised and uh, the first effect of uh, that was uh, discovered in Belfast yesterday. A court case uh, that was to be heard by Belfast Crown Court was... uh, brought to an end uh, and a woman who had been prosecuted for buying online abortion pills was prosecuted in what has been described as a landmark ruling. Her solicitor Gemma Conlon of Chambers Solicitors spoke on her behalf afterwards. My emotions are all over the place and I find it hard to put into words how I am feeling. For the first time in six years 
I can go back to being the mother I was. I am so thankful that the change in the law will allow other women and girls to deal with matters like this privately in their own family circle. The result of abortion no longer being an offence in Northern Ireland heard outside of Belfast Crown Court yesterday. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, you heard uh, that solicitor speaking outside of uh, Belfast Crown Court uh, yesterday following uh, a woman being acquitted uh, for buying abortion pills online. That follows uh, a change in uh, the law which has resulted in abortion being decriminalised. Of course, it wasn't uh, the government in Northern Ireland uh, that brought about this change in the law. It's as a result of an amendment uh, to the Northern Ireland Act which was introduced in Westminster. Here... Politicians have changed the laws and abortion is now legally available. Let's talk to Padreto Bean, who's a TD for Mead West and the leader of the AIM2 party. Uh, you were once a member of Sinn Féin and you left that party over this issue. Did you ever vote in favour of abortion? Uh, I never voted in favour of abortion, no. Did you ever vote uh, in favour of holding a referendum on abortion? No, I never did. All right, uh, but uh, the doll record says you did. That's correct. Obviously, um, this whole conversation has come out of the Votegate uh, scandal that's happening in Leinster House at the moment, uh, where a number of Fianna Fáil TDs have either voted um, multiply or they've voted on behalf of somebody else who hasn't been in the chamber. And uh, it came to light, obviously, um, this week that um, obviously Jerry Adams had voted in my seat during the March. 2018 referendum bill uh, at the time uh, well I wasn't obviously in the chamber um, he had voted uh, in error I believe uh, and in fairness to him he apologised for it and he corrected uh, it but my understanding is that um, he, told, he brought it to the attention of the tellers at least he, he, he may have done that mm-hmm. and uh, at the time you know I was willing to, to accept that Okay, but the Dáil record states that Patter Tobin voted in favour of holding uh, a referendum on abortion when you didn't, uh, and yeah. uh, and history will record that to be the case. Yeah, so basically, um, obviously, there was a debate on, in the Dáil. Uh, I think it was Tuesday this week, and Mary Lou Macdonald uh, had stated that it was uh, absolutely wrong for any TD to vote uh, for another TD. Um, who wasn't in the chamber and she said that there shouldn't be one rule for the working people of Ireland mm. and uh, another rule for TDs and you know when I heard Mary Lou McDonald make that pronouncement it just kind of struck me as um, a little bit odd because obviously I knew at that stage that you know one of her own TDs had done exactly that uh, and you know while it was definitely in my view an error on Jerry's mm. part a- a- an honest uh, mistake I also, if you I also like, felt yeah. that you know it's sometimes the high moral ground can be a slippery place and um, you know if people are going to be involved in pointing the finger at other TDs they should at least make sure that their own house is in order first mm. but you accept that it was an honest mistake no I do I, 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 yeah. I, I, mm. I've never said it, said otherwise and I was disappointed said... and annoyed at the time that mm. it happened because obviously mm. the first I heard about it was I got I saw a tweet to say that uh, one that you know I had voted first and two to say that it was never actually that uh, Jerry Adams had sat in my seat. Uh, but when Jerry said to me that it was an error and uh, that he'd done his best to to bring it to the tellers, uh, you know, I I wouldn't be, you know, I don't sweat the small stuff. In the end of the day, and um, that's just you know people know where I stand on the right to life. 
I don't think there's a, there's a person in the country uh, who doesn't know that the right to life is a you know a fundamental mm. uh, issue for myself and. Uh, you know, I don't think no, anybody I, would would, I, would be confused in I, any I, way. I'm, by, sure, I, I'm by sure. I'm sure that's the truth. But uh, the record stands, and uh, the record has recorded that you voted in favour of holding uh, this referendum, and uh, history uh, will tell that uh, uh, as the story as it happened. Uh, have well, you, I'm not have sure you, if that's the case, Michael. Well, have you sought to I, have I, the doll record I, changed? Well, I, I've asked. Can it be changed? And I'm told that uh, it can't be changed once oh, it's signed okay. off on by, by the tellers on the day, mm-hmm. uh, and then it's committed. And once all all of the people in the chamber sign off on it, that's it. Um, but it's actually like it's it, it. Sometimes this can confuse from, from the major issue here. The major issue here is that we've had in the last couple of weeks very serious occasions mm. where a Fianna Fáil TD uh, basically told another Fianna Fáil TD to vote on six occasions for him. And then he left uh, the chamber. We've had another Fianna Fáil to the Lisa Chambers, who admits to now having uh, voted twice, so voted once for Derek Leary and then for herself, and, you know, didn't tell the the teller that that uh, happened. Uh, And then when she was asked about it first, she again, you know, lied around it and didn't tell the truth, and only finally came out. Now, if you or I did that, you know, in a general election Mm. outside the doll, it would be considered voter fraud. Well, that's it. And there's questions about how Barry Cowan voted when he wasn't in the chamber. Yeah, so so, Mm. so my point in in all of this is we have all of these political parties all clambering for the high moral ground and saying that there should be investigations into it. And now we have three investigations into this particular uh, situation. When, in actual fact, if political parties just cleaned up their act... You know, if, if leaders said, OK, you know, only the TD uh, who's voting in, in uh, a TD can only vote for themselves. Well, in that scenario, um, that would put an end to this, that the, the leaders can whip mm. their own TDs into doing the right thing, doing the bleeding obvious with regards to this. Like the, the idea that a TD wouldn't realize that voting twice was was wrong is just incredible. You know what I mean? Especially with a TD with some legal background. So, um that would be my perspective on that. Yeah, and I, I take it that's how this is going to pan out, uh, that changes will be made, uh, whatever systems are, are put in place to make it impossible to vote for somebody else and that you will have to vote on your own behalf, in your own seat, uh, moving forward. But we've got to get to that stage yet. Uh, but uh, as uh, this rumbles on, uh, have you ever been tempted uh, to vote uh, on behalf of somebody else? Uh, and I suppose, uh, given uh, the... Uh, way you were at odds with Sinn Féin, uh, you could have voted on behalf of Sinn Féin uh, against uh, the will of the party or the will of the TD that you'd have been voting on behalf of. Well, I've never, I've never been tempted to vote for anybody else uh, in the wrong direction or anybody else that wasn't in the chamber. And I will say this as well: the 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 doll vote has has the value of the doll vote has seemed to change radically in this particular doll. So, in other words, you know, in the previous doll. Um, when a TD voted, um, that vote really counted. So if the government were to lose a vote, it could mean the end of that government and the government being brought down and an election happening. Uh, or if you voted for something, it was likely to see that issue actually being implemented. But in this doll, it's actually radically changed because of the so-called new politics, because mm-hmm. of the confidence in supply. The government actually loses lose votes every week, maybe three or four votes every week. So it's no longer front-page news when the government loses votes, and it's no longer that it's likely to be an election afterwards. But even for opposition um, motions and bills, just because we have managed to get a majority for a motion or a bill doesn't mean 
that's going to happen either because most of those bills just disappear into thin air at third stage in the doll. So because of the dysfunction in the doll, there has been a kind of a, a shoddiness or a slackness that has actually come into play with regards to people voting. You know, the vote doesn't have the same value in their minds. And I think we have to go back to that, you know, idea that a vote has value and that mm. if a majority votes in a particular way in the doll, there should actually be an action on the on the back of that. It shouldn't be ignored. OK, uh, we were talking to Labour's Jed Nash a little bit earlier on and he was suggesting there will be a general election here on uh, the 29th of November. What are your thoughts? Um, I'm, I'm cautious about getting into speculations around elections, uh, but my view would be that's the likelihood also. Um, I think that um, you have a situation where uh, Fianna Fáil obviously have taken a, a fair hit with regards the, this, this particular scandal um, and you know that if there is an extension to January 31st in Britain uh, with regard to Brexit it'll, it'll leave a window for them to have a general election and then there can't be any excuse here not to have a general election and you know if you look at you know the crisis in housing in health in education uh, in transport in farming at the moment in my view there's a radical need to make sure that we have an election we have a lame duck doll at the moment we have the least productive doll probably in the history of the state and with the amount of people who are in serious crisis with the two million people who i believe are locked out of leo radgers ireland it is really important that we have an election to put in place a government that will actually action uh, their needs. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Mead West TD, Patrick Tobin is uh, the leader of the AIM2 party. Michael Reed on LMFM. And let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Quite a few people in touch, Michael, in relation to the minimum wage Mm. not increasing, and they're not happy about this. We had a 78-year-old woman who phoned in, didn't want to give her name, but just said, did the government get a rise lately? If yes, why not the people who deserve it? The people who should get a rise, I think it's a disgrace, and she says because of this she's not going to vote again. There you go. God, right. (laughs) Mary by text Mm. says, are the TDs getting a rise? Yes, they are. That's not fair that you don't increase the minimum wage. Richie from Tala, the government, well able to give TDs and ministers an increase. They look after themselves, Michael. Mm. Mairead from Drogheda, it makes me laugh that the minimum wage couldn't go up because of Brexit. But yet the TDs could get their wage increase despite the fact that they are already on huge money. Mm. Surely the people at the bottom deserve to get a rise. Geraldine also on the same topic. Very unfair, I feel, not to increase the minimum wage. Listening into your discussion, Michael, the cost of living is going up. And once again, it's those who are earning the lowest wages that are being penalised, even though they are out there trying to make a living, prepared to go out and work every day for it. Okay. So that's just on that topic. Mm. We've had a couple of calls uh, still coming in and uh, in relation to so-called Votegate, Michael. First of all, Mm -hmm. I'll go to an email Mm. we got yesterday from Pat. Mm. He has some thoughts on the voting shambles in the Doyle. First of all, possible solutions. Members must be in a seat and vote themselves. Put members' names on seats to help those who can't find their own proper seat. (laughs) ID recognition system, i.e. voice, 
fingerprint, card, etc. Mm-hmm. Or as someone yeah, suggested yeah, yesterday, yeah. bum authentication. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wasn't it, Jess? Mm-hmm. Camera in the dial to have a full view of all in the chamber at all times, especially at voting times. I feel it's time to bring this widespread abuse to an end once and for all, Michael. I Mm. strongly believe it's going on all over the House from what we've been reading the last few days. Proper strong sanctions are needed to be introduced for all those found to be involved. It seems that this has been going on for a while and it's completely unacceptable. It's one word and that's fraud. Uh, I think when uh, laws are introduced, I think everybody would agree that it's very important. I think some might suggest that politicians are full of their own self-importance, but don't take what they do to be very important. The problem, says John from Drogheda, is that the Doyle is not, that there are not enough TDs are making use of their seats. They should get fold-down seats, Michael, suggests yeah. John, that they have to bring in with them and yeah. then sit on. And then a personalised personalized card that has to be inserted into some kind of a slot or something. Mm, yeah. He says that probably wouldn't work because based on the memories they have, most of them will probably forget the cards. Mm, they'd mm. probably even forget the seats if they, they had to bring them probably would, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. Um, he, what John also says, mm. that they could probably take out 90% of the seats, Michael, because they're not always used. Mm, that's very, very true. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that uh, cards would work. They work in the European Parliament. Uh, and if uh, TDs were to forget to bring their cards, I'm sure people would be asking them why they didn't vote. Uh, but in this day and age, with all of the technology that there is available, uh, I mean, you would think a solution would be very easily found. And I'm sure one will be uh, after the report today and so on. But uh, I mean, a lot of people can't open their phone without their fingerprint. Uh, and that's I mean, true. that's the kind of technology that is available. And you wouldn't have to remember to bring your card. You just show your thumb to the button as the case may be. Tom, also on the same Mm. topic, says Michael, I've been listening with interest to Mm. the various discussions around this voting controversy and what really... um, I suppose uh, that I'm surprised about, says Tom, is the blatant disregard for the system mm. that it seemed to be widely accepted, even listening to the journalist that was on, that this was going on. Mm. But nobody seemed to do anything about it. Yeah. And he mm. finds this hard to believe that in the centre of where democracy is supposed to take place, that this can be allowed to happen mm. because he says... You know, come election time, everybody is warned about having your ID with you and, mm. the you know, the importance that you, you only can use one vote, one person, all that kind of thing. And yet here we have in mm. Leinster House and this is going on and that it was widely accepted. Yeah, it seems to be the case. Mm-hmm. So that's his thoughts on okay. it. Moving from that, if we can mm. then, uh, just to the thoughts for general election. Uh, Michael, yeah, Michael, yeah, is it going yeah, to happen? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we had um, a call from Shane who says, Leo must be feeling very cocky. Just listening to your interview there with Senator Nat. Uh, if he feel if if the teacher feels that now is the time to call a general election, he obviously feels that he is going to win. But I don't think that he should be as smug as he is. Not when you look at the homeless figures. I think he doesn't realise the anger that's out there in relation to housing and the situation on our streets. And I look forward to the chance to get to air my view to the whole lot of them when they call to my door. All right. Well, uh, of course, uh, the 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 thing is is that it, it depends on what happens 
in the UK. It happens, or what happens uh, across Europe, if uh, yes, the UK is given right. an extension uh, by Europe uh, for Brexit, if so, it may go for an election. It may not go for an election. Uh, the father of uh, the House of Commons is Conservative MP Ken Clark, and he was protesting about the idea of an election and urged the Prime Minister Boris Johnson yesterday not to go for an election, but to spend more time debating the bill and to try and get it through. Get over his disappointment and accept that October the 31st is now Halloween. It is devoid of any symbolic or political content and will fade away into historical memory very rapidly. I think it would still be very much in the best interest of this country and of democracy to get Brexit done by October the 31st. Right, that's uh, the adamant uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking in uh, the House of Commons yesterday. It was suggested to him that perhaps now is the time for a general election. Let's hear from SNP MP Ian Blackford. The Prime Minister said he would pull his bill. He hasn't. He He wants Scotland to trust him. But how can we? Fired twice for lying. Found unlawful by the courts. The Prime Minister has sold Scotland out time and time again. Parliament, Scotland, cannot trust this Prime Minister. If the Prime Minister so desperately wants an election, Europe is willing and waiting. What's stopping him? He must now secure a meaningful extension and bring on a general election. Let the Scottish people, let the Scottish people decide our future in Scotland. Well, Mr. Speaker, what an exciting development! <laughs> perhaps he, perhaps he, perhaps he might, he might pass some of his, some of his courage down the, down the line. Uh, <laughs> But, but on, the, on the point that he raises, Mr Speaker, about our commitment to the Union, uh, he should know that uh, thanks to Scotland's membership of the Union, Scotland this year receives the biggest, the biggest ever block grant, £1.2 billion. Uh, Somewhat condescending, uh, Boris Johnson responding uh, to the Scottish National Party MP Ian Blackford yesterday, uh, who was suggesting the time might be mm. right for a general election in the UK, and if uh, there was... A general election here, it might be the right time, or there, it might be the right time here. Uh, and uh, the 29th of November is the date that's being suggested today because there will be four by-elections mm. held on the 29th. So if you were to go in the immediate future, I suppose it would make sense to coincide with the by-elections, wouldn't it? It would. Yeah. Do it all at once. Oh, wouldn't we just love that, Michael? Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose there'll be a lot of... A lot of people trying to get into Dal Aaron, or is it Dal Iran? Um <laughs> Uh, it's funny how you say something like Dal Aaron and it just rolls off your tongue, isn't it? You know, uh, but it is a foreign language uh, to some people, uh, even to some who were at one time Secretary of State for Nor- Northern Ireland, such as Owen Patterson, who mentioned Dal Iran, I think he said Iran, uh, in the House of Commons yesterday. And Michael Collins in the Dal Iran on the 19th of December 1921 said something which pretty well reflects my views this evening. (coughs) As one of the signatures of the document, I naturally recommend its acceptance. I do not recommend it for more than it is. Equally, I do not recommend it for less than it is. In my opinion, it gives us freedom, not the ultimate freedom that all nations desire and develop to, but the freedom to achieve it. This bill does begin the process 
of establishing the freedom so that we can get our full freedom. And in, I hope I don't follow the fate of Michael Collins in wanting to see this delivered. OK, well, let's uh, leave that where it is. Uh, Michael Collins, Dahl, Iran, Owen Patterson, former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Uh, they have been mentioning uh, Ireland and Irish issues and Irish people uh, on occasion in uh, the House of Commons. Uh, the IRA were mentioned yesterday, Marie. OK. Right. Uh, we'll hear how and why now. Less than one year ago, the Prime Minister said, and I quote, that any regulatory checks and custom controls between Great Britain and Northern Ireland would damage the fabric of the Union. Given that this deal clearly does damage the fabric of the Union, does he still agree with himself? Mr. Speaker, uh, I, I believe that, that, and I know that this was raised many times in the House yesterday, I believe that the Union is preserved and indeed we are able to go forward together as one united kingdom and do free trade deals in a way that would have been impossible under previous, under previous deals. Uh, this is a great advance for the whole of the UK and we intend to develop that together with our friends in Northern Ireland. But I must say to the right honourable gentleman and indeed his colleagues on the front bench that I think it's a bit rich, a bit rich, Mr. Speaker, to hear from him about his sentimental attachment to the fabric of the union between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, when he has spent most of his political lifetime supporting the IRA and those who have destroyed by violence. That's Boris Johnson, uh, the British Prime Minister, responding uh, to Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the leader of uh, the Labour Party. Quite animated stuff in the House of Commons yesterday. I felt like I was at a football match there when I heard all the roars and mm. the shouts. <laughs> Had to take the headphones off for a minute. Just can I stay with Brexit for a minute because David yes. was in touch. And David thinks that the EU are showing great patience to the UK. Mm. He says that when you see a situation that the Prime Minister of the country is actually telling the EU that he doesn't want an extension, Mm. but the EU is still considering giving it. Mm. And he just wonders, will the patience run out? Well, I suppose it's all a matter of interpretation. You could suggest uh, that Europe is uh, telling the Prime Minister you're going to have an extension whether you want one or not because you have to sort this out Mm. in a way that's reasonable for all of us. Or you could interpret it, as I did last week, uh, to mean that uh, the European leaders have decided to launch Boris Johnson's election campaign by playing along with Mm. this tactic uh, which is inevitably going to result in a general election but Boris will have all of the arguments on his side to say well look you can blame anybody and everybody else but me for what has happened. So he's playing the game He's been clever. Well, if he if that is the game that he's playing, he is very very clever. It seems uh, that that's uh, the way. Uh, maybe but some m- could interpret it. Maybe yeah. he's bundled into it. I don't know. Uh, but if that's the outcome, it'll play to his advantage one way or another. Just moving, Michael, if we can, then to um, that awful situation yesterday where the bodies were found in the truck in the in England. Um, Deirdre, I suppose, summing up what everybody's thinking, just to say that it's just so awfully sad to hear about this happening really was horrific to hear about. Gronia phoned in to say, Michael, there's just no words. 39 people dead, Mm, mm. losing their lives so horribly. We need to get to the bottom of this, why they were in that truck 
and how they were allowed to be in the truck. Mm. This has to be the last time that something like this happens. Well, it won't be. It won't be because the next time we talk about a refugee centre or a direct provision centre being set up somewhere, there'll be somebody outside protesting. Mm. There might even be somebody setting the place on fire so that these people don't move in here. They're not welcome here. Uh, They're not welcome anywhere. And that is the problem. Whether they're leaving countries because of war or famine or threats to their lives or their families or other reasons, uh, or whether it's for economic reasons, they want to leave. And they want to leave to such an extent that they're willing to take these risks. These people are not stupid. They know the risk. Anybody with a brain knows the risk that you're taking by getting into the back of a, a truck. Those people decided to take that risk and so they paid the ultimate price. Undoubtedly, mm. they felt it was a risk worth taking because their fate possibly better than where they were leaving. Uh, and that must have been the considered o- opinion that they came to yes. in deciding to get into the back of that truck. But it is a, a terrible, is. terrible tragedy. And it is a tragedy that reflects on every single person in this world. Yes. Well, look, I know we'll be mm. discussing it yeah. later on, but we'll leave it at that for the moment, Michael. OK, Marie, thanks for that. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, Michael Brennan, uh, political editor, with uh, the Sunday Business Post is on uh, the line with us. Good morning to you, Michael, and uh, thanks for joining us as always. We're going to talk uh, about uh, the voting discrepancies, the report from the Keown Corla today, and uh, the debate that will take place later on. But before we do, can we talk about how that is feeding into a bigger issue, or possibly feeding into a bigger issue, uh, because it's putting an awful lot of pressure on Fianna Fáil, if you couple that with the most recent polls and the boost that they've given to Fine Gael, how Brexit is being handled by the government satisfactorily, it would seem to most people, and the Taoiseach Leo Vratker being seen as a great statesman as a result of that by some, that we're looking into a Brexit extension, that that could lead to, to an election in the UK and that all of that could give us breathing space here. Are you surprised to hear that Labour's Jed Nash and... Aintu's Pedro Bean told us this morning that they think there could very well be an election here on the 29th of November. I suppose you can never rule it out, Michael, because uh, there are a set of circumstances where that could happen. If by some chance Boris Johnson presses on and gets his Brexit deal through the House of Commons, he said he's, he's going to keep going with it and see if he can get the votes. If he managed to pass that, all of a sudden the, the government and Fine Gael would be able to say, we've presided over Brexit, Ireland has come out without a hard border, it's a diplomatic triumph, and now's the time to, you know, to have a, a, a general election and give the people a say. So it's, it's certainly possible, but that's a big if, given what we've seen in, over in London. And that date has already been penciled in for the four by-elections. Uh, so if it is uh, to happen in the near future, that would seem to be the likely date. It, yeah, effectively, there, there is, I think, political agreement in the Leinster House that you cannot have a general election campaign that starts in, in December and has a voting date somewhere there because the huge focus that's on Christmas and the wind down at the end of the year. So it's seen as it has to be in November and that 29th of November by-election date would be seen as the absolute uh, cut-off point for, for a general election this side of Christmas. 
Okay, so uh, pressure undoubtedly on Fianna Fáil, or at least on Fianna Fáil, if not on others, including five Fine Gael ministers. Uh, the Ceam Corla has ordered an inquiry into all of this. Uh, we're to hear uh, the results from that inquiry today. That's right. There, there's due to be a meeting right now of the, the Committee of Procedure and Privilege, which is the committee in Leinster House, which effectively looks after how the doll operates. And they're due to get that report, look at it. And the Cancorla said if, if it can be cleared straight away, he wants it published. So we're expecting that in the next couple of hours. And then statements in the doll about it and perhaps from some of the Fianna Fáil TDs involved around half two. Okay, uh, but we don't know if uh, the Fianna Fáil TDs will volunteer to make those statements, or do we? We, I I certainly don't know at this point, Michael, Mm. but I would be very surprised if Timmy Dooley and Niall Collins and even Lisa Lisa Chambers Mm. as well don't take the opportunity because it's a chance for them to, to express contrition for what happened. There's no doubt what happened was wrong. They have to make amends and do so publicly. If they don't do it now in the chamber, they're going to be pursued and hounded, I'm sure, for, for, for a lot longer afterwards. So this is this is an opportunity for them to effectively uh, stand up and say sorry for what they've done. So you believe that this report uh, will reflect on the behaviour of those three TDs. Uh, who else uh, may have come under scrutiny? Well, there are, you mentioned those complaints made against uh, uh, Fine Gael ministers uh, compiled, we're told, by Fianna Fáil going through doll video footage to try and find that uh, they were not the only sinners here, that Fine Gael have been casting stones and yet sinning themselves. So it, I, I, mm. it's not clear as yet if the, the Cancorla and the report will go into that, but certainly there could be a danger of a plague in all your houses that the public may not make the distinction that uh, that this was just a Fianna Fáil problem because there does seem to be a, a widespread practice in the doll as we know now of people pressing each other's voting buttons which mm. which needs to be sorted out and that seems uh, to have been the response uh, from uh, the five Fine Gael ministers saying I, I was in the house I wasn't on camera uh, and Regina Doherty uh, then taking this to a, a farcical level uh, although uh, you would if you were her and you felt uh, you had a, a case that you could defend by suggesting that they were your boots that could be seen on camera yeah, it's a, it shows you how bizarre this whole situation has become, Michael. I, I was talking to Fianna Fáil TDs yesterday and they were they were saying with a wry smile that the, it's very unfortunate for them that the cameras in the doll, the ones that go on public display, are mostly trained on their backbenches and therefore others are escaping <laughs> scrutiny mm. and so on. So the, 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 the joke as well was that if you were up the backbenches at the, at the top of the chamber, you're in a great position because you can't be caught on camera at all. Um, but on a serious level, mm. look, it, it has consumed a lot of attention in Leinster House. There are more important issues, even though this is a, a fundamental thing to democracy. Mm. But they just need to put a lid on it at this stage, bring in a new voting system and, mm. and assure people it won't, it won't happen again. And that should be easily done, shouldn't it? Yeah, there, mm. there's a very mm. good system in the European Parliament. I, I expect some variant of that <clears throat> to be introduced mm. where you have a voting card, M- MEPs in the European Parliament in Brussels mm. and Strasbourg use that so that only they can vote. 
it was thought of in the Dáil back, I think, in 2002 when mm. electronic voting came in. But the fear Brendan Howland of the Labour Party told us was that people would lose their ID cards and wouldn't, would be missing the card mm. when they needed to vote. But I think mm. it's gone to such a stage now. We, we need, I'm afraid, to go with a, probably a stricter system. But uh, as we were saying, uh, a lot has changed in, in 17 years uh, and a lot of us are the only people who can open our phones, our own phones, by using our, our thumbprint. That's right. I, mm. I think the doll here is is sort of behind the curve where people are are using not only their 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 thumb, their fingerprints to open their phones, but even uh, retina scans as well for mm. some mm. more expensive models for social I, I welfare would, recipients. Apparently, yes. Yes, mm. you know, I mm. would have uh, have to say though, you know, on a sort of more sympathetic mm. note to TDs, their job has changed from when electronic voting came in. They now are bombarded by social media like everybody is. Mm. They have mm. they have. And more votes to cast than ever before in new politics, and the voting process is very slow. So a lot of the TDs are saying, can we speed up these votes, not be mm. waiting three, four, five, six minutes between votes? Because modern culture is, you press buttons very quickly, mm. and I think that the system also needs to speed up, because they're not going to sit around like, you know, like dummies in their seats for eight minutes between mm. votes doing nothing. You need to, I suppose, change the system in a, in a broader way as well. That's it, and we've heard lots of, of reasons uh, for not being in your seat, and it may be the only chance uh, that you get to speak to a minister. I think somebody suggested that Timmy Dooley might have been on his way home to Clare. There was another suggestion that he, he was giving a radio interview, and he could have been caught up talking to LMFM or Clare FM or whoever it was, uh, and quite often you'll hear people on the radio and the bells ringing and all of that sort of thing. Uh, what about Barry Cowan in this? There's questions being asked about him as well, isn't there, as to how he cast a a vote when he was outside of the chamber? Yeah, and I, I have to say, Michael, it's 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 become almost like the the star chamber in in Leinster House at the moment, with accusations mm. flying at at different TDs. That was thrown at Barry Cowan yesterday in the Dáil, and Barry uh, Mary Lou Macdonald, the Sinn Féin leader, attempted to pull him into it, and he said, "What about Jerry Adams?" Because of course mm. we know Jerry Adams, uh, you know, was was voting for for Pather Tobin uh, during a, an abortion referendum vote, which was a mistake, which he corrected, I think, but. Mud is flying everywhere, and it's a bit like almost the old Cold War scenario of mutually assured destruction. They're both flinging nuclear missiles at each other, and if they don't stop soon, you know, there'll be nothing left standing in, in Leinster House. But uh, the Ken Caller will report today, uh, if it's published, we'll find out what's in it, but we don't expect any sanctions against any TDs because of a separate complaint that has been made. That's right. This is, uh, I think, purely a report on on the facts of the situation from talking to the TDs themselves and looking back at the the video footage and the electronic voting records. But there has been a separate ethics complaint made, and that will will involve a, a sort of investigation. And it's it's possible for to have sanctions there, such as a, a suspension from the doll or a motion of censure against you. And um, but I would say the doll's record in disciplining its members is not is not huge. You know, mm-hmm. it, things don't tend to uh, happen in a big way. So so I'm not I'm not sure. And there'll be enormous sanctions out of it, but there's there's big political embarrassment, especially for Fianna Fáil, who had thought they had a bit of political momentum in, in recent months. OK, well, we'll find out more anon, and we'll thank you for joining us uh, this morning for that matter, Michael. Uh, thanks, as I say, Michael Brennan, political editor with the Sunday Business Post. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Brian Caloran, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Immigrant Council of Ireland, is on uh, the line to talk to us about uh, this horrendous uh, discovery in Essex yesterday. Good morning to you, Brian, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. And I don't think that there's anybody listening to us now in this country or further afield who doesn't cringe at the thoughts of how horrific it must have been to have opened the doors of a sealed container to discover that it was a mass coffin with 39 deceased persons inside. But is it something, do you think, that we all must take some responsibility for? Well, good morning, Michael. Yeah, I think I think that's everybody's first reaction in terms of the human impact of what we saw. And unfortunately, it's not the first time. And unfortunately, it won't be the last time. There's been numerous instances like this over the last number of years where a large number of people have been found in this kind of condition, unfortunately, at once. But And there's also many other instances that we don't hear as much about of individuals or one or two people who unfortunately lose their lives trying to cross a border in some way uh, throughout Europe uh, and, and as well between, say, France and the UK and between even into Ireland in the last number of years as well. So... It, 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 the human reaction is the first point and then I suppose it, it leads us on then to the questions that naturally come after that as to how this type of thing happens. And how this type of thing happens, I suppose, is really the fact that people are in very desperate circumstances and that continues, you know. The, the, the plight of refugees and asylum seekers throughout Europe received an awful lot of attention in 2015, 2016 and then to a certain extent died out as, as the numbers started to drop and as the measures were put in place to try and stem the flow of people entering Europe. But it didn't stop it, you know. People are still trying to enter Europe either across the Mediterranean or across borders. And as a continent, we still continue to address this mm in the manner of fences and restrictive immigration controls, which, as I say, have managed to stem the flow to a certain extent. But which comes from attitude, which comes from the way people think. Yes. You I, know, I think pe- 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 people resist other people coming into their country. I mean, to a large degree, it's what's happening in the UK with Brexit, isn't it? Well, I think, you know, we've definitely seen in the last five years an increase in kind of anti-migrant sentiment. Mm. And some of that is informed by concerns that people have about local infrastructure and housing and very legitimate things that that people are concerned about at local levels that have been targeted towards migrants, unfortunately, Mm. in some settings, but also have been kind of exploited by politicians. We see, you know, governments across Mm. Europe that are openly and virulently um, anti-migrant. And they are leading, I suppose, an agenda of kind of fear and distress and disinformation. Or Donald Trump suggesting uh, that it would be wrong to shoot Hispanics coming over the border and uh, the great support he receives from American people for those attitudes. Well, those kind of narratives are not harmless, you know, like people, mm. there, there's not there's not a wide gulf between political forces saying things like that and the actual policies that are then carried out that result in, in real life impact upon people's lives, mm. um, especially those that are that are trying through. It has to be absolute desperation to try and do something like this, you know, mm. to try and get into a, a, a truck that may or may not result in you losing your life mm. uh, at the other end of the journey. Well, that's it. I mean, you know? it seems to me, Brian, uh, that it's pointless saying oh those poor people oh those terrible people who trafficked them the human uh, traffickers uh, and so on they all should be put in prison and locked away for years if you vote for Donald Trump if you vote for anti-immigrant policies for that matter 
Well, I, I think there there is what happens is I suppose the first the first point is the desperation of, of mm. people moving. The second point then is the official state sanctioned responses that you get to it in the form of fences and restrictive immigration controls. And then I suppose the next thing you get then is is criminal profiteers who try and exploit that gap. Mm. Um, we we spent time in the in the camps in Calais and Dunkirk in 2015 and 2016, and those camps were circled by by people smugglers just waiting to take advantage of the situation. And they are not you know altruistic. Humanitarian. No, but that's because there was a situation that they could gangs. take advantage of. Absolutely. They're mm. a criminal gangs mm. looking to take mm. advantage of people's desperation. And they, they have, you know, on the most part, have absolutely no concern whatsoever for people's lives. It's about profit. Mm. And the people who get into the back of these trucks, they don't just do so knowing that there's a, a risk, a, a huge risk. Uh, to their well-being and uh, indeed their lifespan uh, but quite often they pay huge amounts of money for the opportunity that is that's it and you know generally like we we've come across instances i suppose uh, particularly in northern france when we were there but you hear it about an awful lot as well where figures of thousands and thousands of euros being handed over people essentially giving their life savings for an opportunity that may or may not work and needless to say if it doesn't work it could end up in a loss of life or if it doesn't end, mm. if it doesn't work and you get caught and you get sent back you don't get a refund you know so people are spending every resource they have and every opportunity they have to to try and get to somewhere where they can have an opportunity for a better life Mm. Um, and it's a very difficult issue in the long term you know like European countries in Ireland included have signed up to things like the UN Global Pact on Migration which talks about expanding legal routes for migration to allow for the fact that more people are on the move than ever before in human history essentially Mm. Um, but actually signing a pact and then going on to the stage of actually doing that and having more legal routes for migration is something that hasn't materialised as yet we're still in in the situation of very restrictive policy, very restrictive controls, and an overall sentiment of push people back. You know, we still have camps in Northern Africa, in Libya, that everybody is screaming from the rooftops are massive human rights violations. And those camps are funded by the European Union. You know, we give money to them. Irish taxpayers' money goes to these camps in Northern Libya, which are abusing human rights. And that's the situation we're in, unfortunately. Are are we joining up the dots, though, in terms of how we think about this? Uh, I mean, when you talk uh, about people taking these great risks, paying out huge amounts of money uh, certainly massive amounts of money as far as the people we're talking about are, are concerned to take this risk a risk they see as an opportunity should they survive it uh, and as we saw in Essex yesterday they quite often don't survive it but when they're looking for a, a better life is that to come here uh, and avail of social welfare or some of the other things uh, that they end up being accused of when they get here well, I think it's, you know, it, it, it is, there's a public attitude around that, that, that sometimes leans towards that assumption. I, I can assure anybody out there, Irish and UK social welfare measures are incredibly restrictive and do not allow for easy access to anything like that, just on an administrative level. But the reality, again, is that most people are not moving for social welfare benefits. Most people are moving in instances where they have little choice, but they have some connection usually to somewhere that they're going. So we met people in northern France that wanted to go to the UK, not because it's a utopia of social welfare benefits, but usually because they have family in there. They have a network that they can establish themselves into, they might have cousins or uncles or whoever it may be, that gives them somewhere to point themselves at. And often as well, a lot of people will have a minimal level or a good level of English as a second language. So things like that are are push factors towards a certain location, not a utopia of social welfare benefits, which is not the 
reality at all. It's incredibly restrictive, especially if you enter a country undocumented. You are not entitled to anything. You cannot access any services whatsoever. Um, and people still enter knowing that that's the circumstance because that's better than what's behind them. Somehow mm. that's better than what's behind them. Uh, and maybe you'd explain to us what is behind them. Why do they take this great risk? In most instances, as we've seen, like the migratory flows to Europe over the last number of years have been for very definite reasons. You know, we've seen Syria, which everybody knows is in the forefront of everyone's consciousness, and again in the last couple of weeks, unfortunately, due to, due to what's happened in northern Syria. Um, Afghanistan and Iraq still maintain, still, uh, still produce large flows of people seeking protection because those situations are far from sorted out. Um, but we also see situations of, of uh, African countries like Eritrea, for example, that have issues around conscription. So at the age of 16 or 17, you're conscripted into the army and you're not let out of the army until you, you, until you die, until you pass away. It's conscription for life and people run away from that kind of instance. But of course, we also see people fleeing now the new phenomenon, a relatively new phenomenon of climate change. So people are losing their, their incomes and that's a major push factor of migration as well. But as well, if you look at the economic disparity between somewhere like the European Union and Sub-Saharan Africa, the, the very fact of any opportunity whatsoever in the European Union is a massive draw factor, particularly for young people in Africa, because they don't see their future there. They don't see that they'll have opportunities there. And these are the complex push factors that drive people, not, you know, the holy grail or the, the kind of inevitability that some might think of getting social welfare or anything like that. They're, you know, these are real issues, and yeah. they're real issues that are driving people into desperate situations. Well, there's a little less real than life and flee for your life or uh, from a, a life not worth living uh, as is uh, the case uh, in uh, many of uh, the individual stories uh, that we're talking about uh, when it comes to people making such drastic decisions such as uh, the one the 39 dead people took to get into the back of a, a truck. Uh, the investigations obviously have to take place Brian and uh, I'm sure we'll leave the authorities uh, to do their work but uh, do you believe uh, that uh, there is an Irish element involved in people smuggling? I th- well, we do um, a lot of work, in particular in the area of, of human trafficking. Now, human trafficking is different from people smuggling. People smuggling is usually somebody entering into a circumstance that they know they're paying somebody to cross a border in, 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 in some way, and generally it, 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 it's kind of undertaken in that manner. Trafficking is different. Trafficking comes from the position of deception. So you're deceiving somebody, you're bringing somebody in saying, oh yeah, no, we'll get you a job or we'll bring you in on a student visa and you're going to be able to work. And, and you end up as a prostitute or something like that. Or something else horrible happens. Harvest, yeah, harvesting marijuana or something like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. well documented instances of all of that um, and we work a lot in that area and that absolutely exists in Ireland as it exists in every other country in the world, unfortunately. But also smuggling does exist too. You know, we've seen instances in the past where it has been detected. There was that instance in Rosslare a couple of years ago and where, again, unfortunately, a number of people lost their lives when they were uh, discovered in Rosslare. It is a phenomenon. It's the underbelly of migration, essentially, when when the, the legal routes and the legal options are not available to people. These kind of areas pro- proliferate, you know, mm-hmm. and, and when we said in 2015 and 2016 the migration crisis in, it, that, was, uh, that Europe experienced, even though crisis is maybe a strong word, because, you know, in comparison to the world, it wasn't to the same scale at all. But that was an instance where this was like Christmas for people smugglers. This is the perfect example of an opportunity for them to profit, you know. And, and 
people profit off human misery unfortunately and, and we need to really wise up to the situation that creates this human misery. Okay well no doubt uh, it was a, a terrible discovery yesterday it was a terrible thing but perhaps it reminds us all that it is a terrible world at times. Brian we leave it there and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Brian Cloran, Chief Executive Officer of the Immigrant Council of Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Joint Directors Committee on the Implementation of uh, the Good Friday Agreement has just launched a report on the challenges and opportunities uh, that cross-border communities will face following Brexit. Brendan Smith is a Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan and a uh, member of uh, that committee. He's on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Deputy Smith. Thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, what can you tell us about the report's recommendations? Well, the report, we met a lot of groups, including um, the East Border Research Committee, expand for the Central Border Area and the North Western Derry groups as well. You know, they have been organised at local authority level over the years, um, local authorities working together. And we met those particular groups because they have been the drivers be- behind drawing down funding from different EU programmes on a cross-border basis to enhance, enhance our infrastructure, both social infrastructure and economic infrastructure. I think the one clear message that we were putting across in the report as well is that there's a huge interdependence in our, in our economies, both north and south, and indeed in our communities and in our society. Thankfully, that has developed since the signing of the Good, Fast, Good Friday Agreement in April 1998. We wanted the committee to emphasise very strongly that we want that progress that has been achieved to be protected and even built upon. There's an obvious need for for um, governments, both North and South and the European Union, to target the infrastructure needs of the region as well. Because it's clear from all analysis and research that the border region will be most adversely impacted by Brexit. The drivers of our economy locally are the farming and agri-food sector, construction product sector, engineering sector. They are the areas that are most heavily dependent on Britain as their export market. They're more vulnerable to to fluctuations in currency values as well. So to try to assist those businesses remain competitive, try and ensure that we maintain the employment that we have, mm. and obviously the need to grow employment, there should be a, a government um, priority to improve the infrastructure needs of our region because we know that better infrastructure reduces costs for business. That makes businesses more competitive. And, and, and that's very important when you're trying to sell products that, that you can sell them as cheaply as possible. But I, I take it, it it's not just our region north-south. Uh, we also have to look east-west as well. Oh, absolutely. And, the, and of course, the, 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 um, we know what the bilateral trade between Ireland and Britain is nearly of the value on an annual basis now nearly of 70 billion euro and Britain is our second largest export market um, Ireland and when we think about the size of our country we are Britain's fifth largest market so it shows how important we are to Britain as well and unfortunately there's not the clarity in regard to Brexit and what arrangements will will, will arise particularly for businesses in Northern Ireland because if you take it in the House of Commons the other day the, the British Secretary of State for Brexit he said that um, he contradicted himself when he said that there be um, that there would be no no need for paperwork or, or mm. people to fill out forums uh, in regard to, to customs or in regard to the movement of products from Britain to Northern Ireland. And then he said thirty minutes later that there would have to be what he termed from recollection exit summary mm. declaration. Now, um, 
unfortunately, delays in products leaving our island or coming to our, our island. Somebody pays for that. So there would be export forms that would have to be completed for produce of any sort leaving Northern Ireland going into Britain. Yeah, well, that's, that's mm. what the Secretary of mm. State had to admit the other day. And when I think of it, I, I heard the, the former Permanent Secretary of the Brexit Department in Britain, when he was interviewed recently, in the last few days, he used the phrase that you or I or people allowed me, Captain Manon, would use more commonly than a person based in London, he says in future it would be ferociously complicated. And what about the support for the region? What about the support for the region from Europe? Europe has given great support uh, to Ireland uh, during the Brexit negotiations, but it has also, over uh, the years since uh, peace uh, was installed on this island, given great support to the peace process, but also to the development of the region in order to support that process and the European funding that comes to the region. Oh, absolutely, and that's why we were meeting with the groups that have been in the position to draw down some of that funding through statutory agencies and through voluntary agencies. And part of our report is very heavily um, emphasising as well the need for certainty in regard to EU funding post-2020. The EU programmes that have been particularly important in the and the peace programmes, and we have called for in the report, we have called for specific funding in relation to the, the border corridor area. And I think it's very important that... that um, that consideration be given to, to an island-wide territorial cohesion policy. And that, that would include what, what we could call a cross-border infrastructure and investment plan funding to replace any loss that might occur in relation to interregal peace funds in the future. They have been a huge catalyst in generating local economic activity and also in, in upgrading our community infrastructure in the provision of facilities for the betterments of communities, both in rural and urban areas. So we have been focusing on the need to ensure that that type of funding is available post-2020. As you quite rightly point out, the EU has been, has been very supportive since the mid-1990s of the peace process in Northern Ireland. Very substantial funds have benefited both North and South. And, and that funding is still needed because the peace building and the peace stabilisation work is not complete as we know. Okay, I know your committee has uh, just uh, launched uh, the report and uh, you've uh, just come out of that launch uh, and we thank you uh, for taking uh, the time, the short time that we have uh, to discuss this with you on the programme this morning but it's much appreciated. Brendan Smith, Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan and uh, Chairman of uh, the Committee on Foreign Affairs and Trade brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.